0: Little unusual. Our defining story is the ANZACs, a military failure. Um, not really the rage these days. Uh, certainly, uh, Trump has decided that the way to remember July the Fourth is uh, is armed, armored vehicles. He'd really like to have a military parade. Uh, you really want to be able to tell the big note stories that uh, the victories of your nation is the, uh, the thinking these days. Um, so apparently North Korea has more of the idea than, um, than Australia as far as to how to remember the history of a nation. Um, because in the end, it's the victor that tells the story. Uh, the powerful people are usually the ones who uh, repeat what was going to be repeated. And the winners will always emphasize their power, won't they? Uh, they will make their enemies look weak so that they can speak about who they are and how successful they are. And look, we get it. Uh, Because even as churches, we will do the same thing. If someone asks you about your church, what do you emphasize? Kids, there was a, a tick list at the start. Has anyone had a go at the tick list of things that you'd use to describe your church? Yeah, Ben? Benaiah? What are some of the words you've ticked? Friendly and and small. There you go. Um, Ben, do you want to try and catch this? That may not work. We might have to get people to come out or something. I might uh, pass this on to Cody. Do you want to be being the? That might be a lot safer. So yeah, we, we find ways to describe our churches. Um, in reality, our little congregation, it's small, it's growing, but it's small. Um, but we, are, we long to be able to talk about our successes and our, our big uh, achievements. Um, it, if you're a big church, then you'll talk about the experience of being at the big church. If you're a small church, you'll talk about how warm it is and how relational it is. You'll find some strength that you can emphasise. Which is why it's so strange the way that Israel keeps telling its story about its history. We saw it last year, we looked at Abraham, um, and what do we find in the story of Abraham? It emphasises his failure over and over again. Twice he runs off to Egypt lying about who his wife is. He doesn't seem to be, when you first meet him, that the perfect example of the father of a nation. And we get it this time round. We go to 1 Samuel. And again, we're, we're encountering a book that, that opens not with a record of all the successes of the kings, but with a recollection of some of the weakness that was in that nation. Um, kids, have you been able to locate Samuel on the co- timeline? Has anyone worked out where Samuel fits in the timeline? Um, yes. Uh, I might ask William. in the kings so it's there's sort of like there's a the long run of straight and then it splits and it's just before the split it's the nation's been building up and up and then suddenly it's going to break apart and i don't know if you went through all the different um events that you might know that are in the book of samuel but you can see them ticked off there um there's everything from david and goliath there's the uh the story of saul trying to kill david it's a, it's a book that we know a lot of the stories with. Um, but what we've got to realize, it comes out of this period of judges. That's a period of anarchy. That's a period when um, the, the theme sentence is, at that time there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we transition from that to this real position of strength. By the end of it, we, we meet the last judge, the first king, and then the beginning of a dynasty. Stability for the people of um, God. It should be this real strong moment in the history of Israel, but as we open this book, what I want us to see is that the emphasis is not on the king, but on the God that the king is supposed to trust. The big question that Israel needs to wrestle with as they think about um, their nation and its history is not who will lead, but how will we be led? Will we be led in a way that leads us to God, and depending on him, or are we going to be looking for people who trust in their own strength? And that's the, the message of this opening section of um, 1 Samuel. So we're going to see this morning, humbly dependent Hannah. We're going to see the proudly corrupt priests, and that will lead us to see what is really matters to God. How about I pray, and then we can get into it. Heavenly Father, please help us this morning to keep remapping our expectations of what matters in your world. Uh, please teach us again, that it's not about our strength and our power, but it's, it's your ability to lift up even the lowest and that we can trust you. This is what matters in this world. And please teach us to do it once again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I said, um, Samuel doesn't start with the story of a king. It starts with a woman crying. Uh, kids, who, who is the woman in the colouring? Does anyone know? Can someone tell me? Hannah. That's right. And can someone tell me the story of Hannah? What happened for Hannah? What happened to Hannah? Talia? Wow, what a memory. That's right. So it's the story of Hannah. Um, you can see there in verse 1, we get her genealogy, but she's a bit of a nobody. As we read through the list of names of who she, her husband comes from, there's no one that stands out. She is a, a bit of a nobody in the people of Israel. And we immediately find out that she has this tragic situation. She can't have a baby. And if you've experienced that, you know the deep pain that's involved. It's not something we we talk about a lot. It's a fairly private pain, but it's actually one we should talk about because it's very common. It's very likely that that many in this room have experienced or been touched by this sort of sadness. But as Talia just said, what makes it worse is this other woman, Penina. Her name means fruitful and she has been fruitful. She's had lots of kids. And she is there mocking Hannah. And worse, her husband seems to have zero emotional intelligence. Um, How about I read the story from verse 6 and we'll see what happens. Uh, Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And the answer is, no, of course you don't. <laughs> we, we really feel Hannah's pain, but there is something bigger going on here. Because notice in verse 7 where Hannah feels this pain, it's at the Lord's house. And when it says the Lord there, the Lord is capitalized probably in your Bible. It's God's covenant name, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. It is this reminder that Hannah is part of a people that have a special relationship with God. And as part of that special relationship, God had made them promises. So, um, yeah, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, I've got it up on the screen. God, uh, people are about to enter the promised land and God makes this massive promise to his people he says if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them then the lord your god will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers he will bless the fruit of your womb the crops of your land your grain new wine and oil olive oil the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, you'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, and nor will any of your livestock be without young. As we meet Hannah, we're supposed to realise there's this massive gap between what God had intended for his people and what they're experiencing. And tragically, it's to the woman who, she seems really godly. This isn't to Peninnah who's picking on the other woman, this is the the humble woman who she's driven to just cry out to God. I, I want to stop here and just say, Hannah's story is a great reminder that it's right to weep in this world. What she's experiencing is there's this gap between what should be, what should have been for the people of Israel, and what was that she was experiencing infertility. And if we've experienced infertility, if we've experienced other suffering in life, we weep and it's right to weep. I know that our world wants to say, well, we're just, you know, we're we're random sort of chancing experiences. We we don't, there's no purpose in this world, no God. And so really suffering, it's just part of the, the way things are. But that means suffering you can't really complain about. I want to say no. I want to say no, this world... When we experience suffering and we weep, it's a reminder that this world is not what it should have been, that there is a gap between what God intended for the world, what he made made it for, and how it is now. There is this suffering that we all experience, and why do we experience it? Well, in the case of Hannah, it's because there's something wrong with Israel's relationship with God. So have a look at 1 Samuel 1, verse 12. Uh, Hannah is praying, and she's in front of the person who should know God, that El- Eli the priest. And yet when he sees her praying, he doesn't recognize it. He actually calls her wicked. Have a look. Uh, verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, "'How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine.'" not so my lord hannah replied i'm a woman who is deeply troubled i have not been drinking wine or beer i was pouring out my soul to the lord do not take your servant for a wicked woman i've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief there really is something wrong with israel because people talking to god is out of place it's unusual the priest doesn't know what to do with it that's weird And as we read on, we realise that there's more problems in Israel because Eli's sons, they are just making a a mockery of the priesthood and Eli's doing nothing about it. So turn to chapter 2, verse 22. Eli's telling off his sons, yes, but notice how late he is to the party. He isn't seeing his sons do this bad stuff. He's having it reported to them second hand. And we knew about it back in verse 12. But he here seems to be catching up with the news. Verse 22. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to be put them to death. And so we read on, and God sends a prophet to Eli and warns him what's going to happen to his family. But it doesn't stop his sons so then we end up with this other famous story from samuel one of the other famous stories the story of samuel in the temple uh kids have you done the the matching up of the speech can someone tell me what happens in that story uh, naomi yep uh sorry the, oh the, you the fill in the blanks one i missed that one what, what were the fill in the blank ones Thank you. Sorry, I meant to ask that one before. So when Kobe's back, I'm sure he'll be able to help you out. Um, But did anyone match up the speech bubbles with who said what? Can anyone tell me what the story is? Chloe. Uh, Do you want to just tell us what happened in the story? very good Chloe well done um will give you one um so yeah God speaks to Samuel Samuel runs off to Eli I think it's his, his voice Eli doesn't know what's going on so he sends him back we do it all over again we do it a third time why the repetition in that story it's showing there's another deep problem with God's people it's not just that they don't recognize the priests don't recognize prayer but they don't know when God is speaking to them either They don't recognize God's voice. Uh, Notice how the the story was introduced. 3 verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And so here's God calling this little boy to become the person who listens to his voice. Um, Verse 7. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet Been revealed to him. Hannah is suffering, Israel is suffering. Why? Because people don't know how to relate to God. They don't recognize prayer, they don't know when God's speaking, they're not listening to his voice. And then the other thing we encounter is the problem when we hear God speaking is we don't like the message. did any of the kids uh, work out what God was going to do, what the message that he'd sent to Samuel was? Do you have it, Josh? No? So God sends this horrible message. It was horrible because Samuel, the little boy Samuel, has to go back and tell his, effectively an adopted father, that God's going to judge his family. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 3. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. That's pretty tough. I'd hate to be that kid having to carry that message to his adopted dad and yet that's the hard thing isn't it god's word sometimes is so uncomfortable and we really don't want to hear it and we definitely don't want to tell someone else it so i had that experience this week i went to get my hair cut and chatting with the hairdresser and uh she's asked what we're doing on the weekend and you have that dilemma do i mention that i go to church or not yeah okay i'm going to give it a shot i mention that i go to church and she shared her um, spiritual background. She, she had a Roman Catholic upbringing and so she was really positive about it. But it was interesting, she said, oh yeah, because people really need community and that's what church brings. I have that next moment in the conversation. Do I, do I just agree with her and sort of roll on or do I sort of challenge what she said? And I think, oh i'll take a risk so i said oh yeah look community is this great side benefit of church it's not really what church is about but it's certainly one of the wonderful products of what god does in his people i guess church really it's about jesus but i know i'm i'm sort of pushing the boundaries there but thankfully the conversation keeps going and we had a good chat but the whole time aware to speak god's word to to say the truth it does make things uncomfortable. I could tell every time I sort of questioned what she was saying, I was just pushing the barriers of social politeness. We need to hear God's word, but it's uncomfortable. Our world needs healing. Israel needed healing. Israel needed to hear God's word. That's why God sent Samuel. Our world needs healing. Our world needs to hear God's word. And that's why God sends us. But of course, the problem we have is immediately the conversation in my mind is, oh, but I'm not able to talk like that. I'm just too clumsy in what I say. I'm, I'm just too insignificant. Kids, did you, um, anyone look at the back page with the colouring in there and who were the significant people and who were the insignificant people? Um, what did you have, Tim? The prince and princess? Yeah, Prince William and Princess Kate? They seem pretty significant people, don't they? Yeah. The police, they're significant in our society, aren't they? Josh? Yeah, the normal people are actually, in God's eyes, really significant. Yeah. And that is the message of these opening chapters of, of 1 Samuel. It's We're seeing this nobody Hannah, and God is hearing her prayer, Whereas the people in power, they become proud and they are not trusting God the way they should. What matters to God is not what matters to us. God has this knack of going to the insignificant places to achieve his purposes. So um, that's what we heard in our Bible reading. Um, we uh, heard it in Hannah's prayer. Um, she has this theme where that it doesn't matter how small people seem, God can lift them up. and It doesn't matter how big someone seems... God can bring them down. So have a look from verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out to food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne 7 children. But she who has had many sons pines away. God has this knack of inverting our expectations. Penanah might have meant fruitful, but Hannah means gift. And what God does is he gives Hannah a child. And this is how God begins the story of Israel. Because what we're going to go on to see are two kings... Uh, The king Saul, head and shoulders above everyone else. But he becomes pride and so he's brought down. Meanwhile, David, he's small, he's a boy, he's insignificant. But he waits for God to make him king and so he is raised up. And that becomes a pattern throughout the Bible. We jump forward to the New Testament and we heard in our second reading the, the prayer of Hannah. Who we sorry, prayer of Mary, who is just a little forgotten descendant of David. And yet God gives her a son, Jesus. And that man, Jesus, is he's, he's not the king you expect and hope for. He's not the military leader. He's not the mighty man. He's known for being a, a wise teacher and who prayerfully does miracles. And yet through him, God does this really amazing thing of rescuing the world. But again, it's in, it's in the most unlikely place. It's not as he comes through with a, a military entourage and defeats the kings. It's when he dies on the cross and defeats sin. God, again and again, works in the unexpected place. He, he brings hope in the most unlikely way. And that's the thing we've got to get. We've got to understand the way that God works is not the way that we like to work. It it changes what we look for. It changes what we look for uh, when we look for for hope. We, We turn to Jesus, who is not the king that everyone expects, but he is the king that we need, the humble king, the king who trusts God. And then he teaches us to be a people that look like that too. And I think that's where i really like us to be wrestling over this term as we go through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we are a church plant. We're small. Um, we can feel f- f- uh, feeble and weak. And we'll be tempted to find ways of measuring our success. Um, we will, you know, because we're not the big church and we can't emphasize the, the music or the light show, we might be tempted to, to emphasize the relationships and the warmth and try and find some other strength that we can talk about. What we want to talk about is the God who makes us strong. Uh, we want to be looking out for the things that are missing in Israel and make sure they're not missing for us. So what was missing? Well, the leaders didn't recognise prayer. And we've got to keep asking ourselves, is prayer a priority for us as a church family? Uh, I'm I'm certainly, that's something I'm, I'm wrestling with at the moment. I used to go to the Saturday morning prayer meeting at Victoria Point. Unfortunately, with our family situation at the moment, I've got other things that clash with that. And I'm really feeling the lack of just getting together regularly with God's people and praying I reckon we need to find a place to do that. I need to fix that in my routine. It doesn't look impressive when we're praying. Sometimes we can even wrestle with whether we feel like it's doing anything. But it is us calling out to the God who runs the universe. Prayer is, is insignificant, but it's where God works. And then the other thing that was a problem in Israel was they weren't listening to God's word. And so we've got to keep treasuring our Bible reading, Uh, our personal Bible reading, Bible reading here at church, our time in home groups. Um, Do we realize what's going on at that moment? God is speaking to us. And sometimes it can feel so ordinary, but this is the place where we hear, hear about God's unlikely salvation, where we're reminded that God works in the unexpected through the weak, through his son dying on a cross. because God doesn't show his power with tanks and military parades, he reveals his power in an unlikely saviour, in the humble person of Jesus, and he calls us to be like him. So how about I pray? Heavenly Father, please teach us to see what matters to you. Keep teaching us that the small, the insignificant, is significant to you. Because whenever we are weakest, that's when we learn to call out to you and trust in you. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the one who picks up the humble, who raises the weak. Thank you that when we feel least capable is when you can most reveal your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rejoice.